Hey everybody, welcome to episode 54 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today we will be talking to cinematographer, photographer, general creative, ex-BMX professional, co-creator of Skaters in Cars, Aaron Nardi. He and I have worked together a fair amount over the last few years, including on the Tilt Project that you have probably heard mentioned here on this show. So I figured it was about time to finally get him to come on the show. So one morning after he stopped by our Butcher Bird Studios office in Glendale, he and I walked over to Griffith Manor Park right next door and recorded this episode. In addition to BMX, we talk a whole crap ton about cameras, tech stuff, and particularly 90s VHS technology. So if you've been sitting back thinking, man, they talk about the outdoors way too much on this show, I sure wish I could hear a whole lot about cameras and VHS tapes, then you are in luck. This is the episode for you. So let us get to the show and hear what Aaron has to say about the beloved VHS camera, the VX1000. I'm Aaron Nardi. I guess you could say I'm a cinematographer and photographer, a creative. I don't know. I do a lot of different stuff. Anything from like content strategies to marketing plans to the actual like advertising strategies behind the campaigns to just, I don't know, DPing or directing or shooting the actual video parts. It kind of ranges the whole scale or the gamut, I should say. And what kind of material do you tend to be focused on? I do a lot lately of like fitness and sports i guess yeah i guess that would be like a majority of stuff some music here and there more music lately i know a lot of what you do is stuff for espn and other similar brands to that so when you come to mind the first thing i think of it's not the only thing but the first thing i always think of is sports type content and not like team sports necessarily but active outdoor sports i guess i started with like bmx and action sports stuff like producing my own videos and working for a video magazine and stuff, and that kind of led to more and more. And yeah, I've worked for ESPN and X Games for, God, I don't know, maybe 10 years now? Something like that? I have a show I co-created called Skaters and Cars with uh, Chris Nareko, and that takes up a portion of time. And that's basically, if you've ever seen Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, essentially the exact same show. So you stole the format of the show is what you're saying? Oh, 100%, yeah. <laughs> it's like literally, well, it's lower budget for sure, um, we don't have Acura as a sponsor. You know, it's basically some top skateboarders driving around talking about whatever. Yeah, and they're talking about skating and whatever else, as well as, you know, we check out a couple spots that they may have done stuff at or legendary spots, and that's kind of it. So let's talk about how you ended up in that, because part of the reason that you started focusing a lot on kind of action sports stuff is because you come from that realm originally, right? You didn't start out with a camera in hand. You started out on a bike, right? I would almost say they came at the same time. Like I started riding bikes, BMX, tricks, whatever. Pretty soon after I was using like a VHSC camera, like the tiny little tapes. Dude, do you know which one? Because it might be the same one I have at my house. Oh God, was it a Zenith maybe? I wish I still had it. I mean, my parents may have it somewhere. 
Because I, I don't think you would have sold it. It's not really worth anything. Yeah, it's totally not. And we, oddly enough, to automatically bring us on a first tangent, one of the projects we shot, Michael Schlain wanted to have a portion at the beginning, which was like a bad TV commercial, shot on a VHS. Oh, that'd be awesome. And so we busted that camera out, and I hadn't used it in like a decade or more. <laughs> I think I think this thing was like fully automatic. It was basically the like replacement for those like Coda or the Super 8s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was that, but with tape. So like... I but it wasn't even as good because they had the t- different tape formats. So they had full on VHS, which was yeah. consumer you could buy. And then they had, what was the other ones? Like eight millimeter or something? I, I yeah. forget what it's called. And then they had VHSC, which was like the crappiest of yeah. all of them. High eight. That's what I was saying. Yeah, there was high eight. That was like the good ones. Yeah. But like, yeah, I can't think if my dad actually had a V, like a, a big full size one, like the full VHS tape one. Like I remember it, but it was like big and in a huge plastic case, like a massive Pelican case. But yeah, then he had this little VHSC one, and I just remember taking that because I could put it in my backpack, and we'd just film stupid stuff and never do anything with it. How old were you at that time? Uh, maybe like 14, 15 maybe. And like, like I said, that was like right when I started riding bikes. I got better at riding bikes, and kind of as I got better at riding bikes, I guess I got better at using cameras. And we just started, just like got a real camera because I worked for a props video magazine when I was 16 and I would leave school. Like we had work program and I would tell them I had work program, but I never signed up for work program. I just told the teachers I had it so I could leave early and go to work. So I would just go work at props and like I was like screen printing t-shirts and like packing orders and stuff like that. Also learning like editing and shooting from my buddy Chris Rye who like We've since now worked on stuff together like 20 years later, which is kind of cool. And you said this is Props Magazine? Props Video, I believe it was, was it Props Video Magazine then? And now it's just called Props. What time period are we talking about here? This was... Like late 90s, early 2000s? Mid 90s. The 411 Skate Magazine, like a monthly or bi-monthly like video magazine. So it'd be like an interview with someone, a contest, this or that. And I don't know, I don't know if even Props was the same exact time. Like when they came out, but it's the same idea. So more people know 411 because it was a little bigger maybe. But same idea, like there'd be an interview with someone, walking around doing whatever, and then they're throwing in B-roll or they're filming specific stuff for the interviews. Then there'd be like a contest or an event. And it was basically like each video was probably an hour. And I think they were monthly or bi-monthly at the beginning. Was it a subscription service? People got it mailed to their house? Yeah, yeah. It was VHS and it would come to your house. And that was like... Oh, it was VHS. Yeah. It wasn't even DVD. No, not yet. Yeah, oh, it wasn't wow. even DVD yet. So the first video I ever made was actually on VHS. Yeah, it was ridiculous. What, I, what kind of video was it? It was a BMX video. So I guess I shot, edited, and produced it like along with my friends. That was basically from working there and working with those guys and kind of learning what to do. We were shooting on like a VX1000, but that was like the camera at the time. And there's still people using it, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it was SD Mini DV. Oh, so it was Mini DV at least. That, yeah, so once it was I, better than VHS. Yeah, at that once. Point. I, yeah, it was after the stepped up. You know, when I got a real camera. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were you're a big dog. Yeah, yeah. The funny part is thinking back, like I didn't know anyone who even owned a light for a camera. Right. <laughs> like, maybe not even a microphone, like a handheld mic, because they used them in props. But like, I don't know that they ever lit anything for that. Yeah, all the lighting stuff came way later. That's crazy to think about that I shot for 10 years without ever having a light. <laughs> right, right. Well, I remember the same thing when, because that's what we did too in high school, get a hold of Hi8 or a VHSC camera. And then there was no concept of you light anything. Yeah. There was, 
hey, let's put on whatever dumb outlandish costume we can come up with, and that'll be our character. Yeah. And then we'll just make up a movie and we'll point a camera at each other. Yeah, yeah. And we'll drive around town until we feel like we're done. Yeah, there was maybe like a semi idea of like locations. Like, oh, this would be cool on a mountaintop or by the river or something. But there was no like, oh, you know what we could do? We could make it look moody or like portray a vibe via the camera. It was more like, I'm wearing a costume or a shirt, yeah, yeah. and my character is this shirt. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's what we do. Like, oh, I, I'm going to carry a bat, and I wear a helmet, so that means... I'm a baseball player. I'm, I'm, or not even that. It yeah. would be, we would go with something le- more asinine than that. Yeah. So oh. how did you end up at Props? Because you said you were still a teenager then. Um, yeah, so I was in high school, and my buddy Sweet Lou... <laughs> That's his Christian yeah. birth name, right? Uh, Lou Caparelli. Sweet Lou worked with them. And I don't remember how it got connected, but he was just like, hey, do you want to work there? And I had maybe met Marco and Chris, the guys who owned it and worked there, maybe once or twice, maybe. And then kind of went in and just started working. And like I said, I was like printing T-shirts and like packaging stuff. And then like basically learning, learning editing. And like back then, editing wasn't even just editing. There was like all this technology behind it that like you had to know like how to like raid drives and like what drive would work because you could, you actually couldn't just buy something at Best Buy and so, make it work. So were you doing non-linear uh, No, this was, uh, yeah. It so was, you weren't doing tape to tape? No, I did tape to tape in high school. Okay. And that's when we would wear like costumes and like, and, and <laughs> right, like right. the, t- the uh, audio video class and we used to get like brought in my buddy and i would make these like horrendous videos which i wish i still had and they were basically saying like characters Mm -hmm. and we would just be these terrible characters for whatever and people would like them so much that they would ask us to be in their projects but basically they were asking us just like come in and ruin them because like they they would have like some sort of serious project maybe like you guys just be in the audience and we'll put a mic by you and just talk like over us what we were so proud of ourselves for figuring out and this was at this point we're talking like 94 93 ish maybe 95 by this point so we would have whatever crappy camcorder we had we'd run it into a vcr of course so usually we'd do all our edits in camera because we didn't really have the means to edit it but some of my friends were musicians so they had a four track and they figured out if we routed it through the four track we could control the levels from the camera hook in a portable CD player and then cut in music. Oh. And so all of our editing was all, was all audio related. Was and it, we were so proud of ourselves for figuring w- that out. Was the song in first? Were you like live editing to the song, essentially? No, we would we'd just find a song that was like, okay, this song will work here. So what we'd be doing is we'd be playing it, oh. recording it to the VCR, swap out the uh, uh, CD, move to the right track, play it. That's amazing. Uh, fade it out, pop out the CD, hurry up and put in the next one by the time we needed it. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's that's all the editing we were able to manage at that point. Well, so like, I mean, here's a like a secret of the trade that somehow people still don't understand. We add the music in post. <laughs> right. You have no idea how many times I've been asked by like a friend or a client, should we put music on? And my answer is like, if you want to hear you talking, no. Or if you want <laughs> right. any audio from this, no music. If it's silent, play as much music as you want. I still don't understand how people don't get that, but it's constantly like, yeah, I'll just like, I'll just talk over some, uh, some like Sean John or like, I don't even know what they want to play. you can move everything, right? So just have me say whatever we want me to say over whatever part of the song, yeah. right? Magically. Yeah. You'll just put in a different song in post. I'm like, huh? Like, so that's, that's always pretty funny, but 
Yeah, back then I remember like actually doing stuff though where we played music because like we didn't know how to insert right, audio. Right, right, so right. I was like, all right, well we have three minutes to make this <laughs> to make this thing live. Like, no, there was a way that so that crappy VHSC camera I had, it did have something called insert edit. Yeah, where you could lay down an audio track. Yeah, and then you could record over the tape without recording over the audio. And so we did do that yeah. sometimes. We put like we'd record like Macarena or something yeah, and then well, go to a park. When you went VH, when you went tape to tape, you could put down the audio track, but like that's crazy to think about how like how a VHS tape actually had had the ability to record a separate audio track. Like when you look at Premiere now, you're like your audio's on the bottom and essentially you were doing that in tape form. Mm-hmm. And then another thing, so we're just going to keep getting nerdy about stuff people don't care about. But <laughs> I didn't learn till college about putting a control track. Oh yeah. On your VHS tape, which for people who don't know what that is, probably people listening don't even know what a VHS tape is. You would always if you tried to cut between two sources, you'd get a bunch of yeah. video noise, so you'd have to record just black or something else which would then add a control track. So it would basically create this this magnetic track on the tape. So then when you cut between yeah. things, you wouldn't get that it was, static. It took away the skipping part. Yeah. Cuz like yeah, you would lose the like the control track was basically almost like time code. Yeah, pretty much. Like it was like, no, it's still we're still going. Because when you did tape to tape, the tape would think like we're done, and then you'd have to like restart a new one, and there was always that like weird delay. And if we had known that in high school, then maybe we would have tried to edit more from VCR <laughs> to VCR. But because we didn't know that, we were like, well, every time we cut it, we just get static. So yeah. we just do everything in camera. Yeah, there's so many funny things back then. Wow. To get back to what we were uh, yeah. talking about. <laughs> Since we went on a huge tangent about VHS tapes and crappy movies we made in the 90s as kids or teenagers, you were talking about this job you got and you're learning to do t-shirts and video. What I find interesting about that is you said you were 16? Yeah, I was 16 because I used to drive there. So you might not have even realized at the time, but basically you were getting the training for everything you do now. Because you're saying now you'll do marketing and then yeah. the additional materials and that's all stuff you were doing there already at 16. Yeah, basically. I mean, it was... I mean, even when I made my video, like part of it was like, how do you promote it? I mean, it wasn't made really to make money when I made Team JV or anything, but it was like, how do you get people to watch it? And back then it wasn't like you could just put something on YouTube. It didn't exist. So it was like, all right, like we have to put ads in Props Magazine or we have to like go talk to people about it, like PR stuff. Honestly, the the fact that that worked is crazy because I don't think I ever consciously was trying to market it. But yeah, I guess you're right. I was like learning marketing and advertising by default just because I was like I want people to see this I want to sell PAL videos because you used to have to have different codecs <laughs> oh man now we're going to talk about NTSC versus, versus PAL versus PAL so yeah like we would I forgot how many were produced but you'd basically produce like in action sorts you'd make NTSC a batch of like say 5,000 videos and then you'd make 1,000 PAL and then those were the international sales so it's kind of the opposite of today because your international sales would be like way would be a fraction of your domestic, I guess. But I didn't even, it's not like I ever had a spreadsheet or knew what domestic or international sales were back then. Who was handling that PAL conversion for you? You weren't uh, doing that yourself, right? Because that's different frame rates and everything once that happens. You know, that's interesting to think of. I think the duplicator basically did it. Okay, so you did have a service. That was yeah, I don't think it. I ended the, I did the conversion myself. So much of it was a lot easier for me because like, I could just ask the guys at Props, like, mm-hmm. hey, I need to make, 3,000 videos, where do I get it done? Because back then, like, there wasn't Google either. So right. you needed to, like, know someone who knew someone or, or do a ton of research, I guess. 
So some parts of it were easy. But yeah, even in that, I learned how to do like the box layout design. So I learned how to use InDesign and Photoshop and like making titles and all that, which led to other things down the road. And now I can't use After Effects at all, but which I'm going to ask you to help me with later, <laughs> uh, a little project. But yeah, yeah, it's weird. There was a lot of, uh, even as like, I guess a teenager, my first job was doing everything I do now, which I guess, I don't know if that's depressing or cool. Well, if it's what you like to do, then it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. I, I was just doing it to do it. If your dream was to become like a, a bricklayer or something, then yeah, you should be sad because yeah. you, didn't, you didn't follow the right path. But yeah. if you like doing it, then sure, it's awesome. I like, yeah, I don't know. I, look, I think I just do stuff I would like doing and somehow find ways to get people to pay me to do it. Well, what's cool is so I always assumed that you got into BMX and then somehow that moved you into video i didn't realize they kind of were happening simultaneously yeah it was pretty much the same time but i guess bmx pushed the video thing more because i guess probably before i rode a bike we were messing around with cameras in like high school doing stuff maybe or didn't have any relation maybe at first i don't know um because like the stuff i did for in school literally zero bike anything when i started working at props started doing more made that video and then that video that i made is what ended up getting me sponsored for riding BMX and uh, so then I started to travel more so then they kind of like I guess they've both built on each other for a long time until I basically stopped riding bikes I guess I don't know yeah they both kind of like work together so when I think of BMX I strictly think of doing tricks on BMX style bikes is there another aspect to it or is that pretty much accurate and there's a bunch of versions of tricks but there's basically BMX racing which I think everyone can kind of imagine. Mm -hmm. Racetrack, eight guys, I think. And I tried that a couple times, but I didn't like it because you had to wait around all day and then they would just like call your number, like Moto 8 and then, or 600. And then you just go for a minute and then you sit and wait. And that was not fun for me. So I'd rather just go to the skate park or the trails. We built like our own trails. But then as far as BMX goes, you have racing, dirt jumping, there's street riding, there's Flatland, which is, I mean, I guess you could equate it to something like breakdancing or something, but like just on flat ground. So there's no ramps involved. It's what like a lot of my friends do now, but they do pretty crazy stuff. And then you have like parks and ramp and like vert ramps and stuff. So there's, it's tricks or racing, but then there's the version of tricks or freestyle is, uh, there's a million variations of that. So I remember being a kid in the 80s and then bikes with pegs on them started coming out and you'd see people on TV doing all sorts of tricks and thinking like, oh, that'd be awesome. I want to do that. And then I'd, get a, I'd have a bike and I'd put some pegs on it and I'd bust my ass a bunch of times and couldn't figure out how to do anything. So how did you go from being a kid that would have been in the same situation to learning how to do those tricks and things? I don't know. I just, I think I just liked it. So like my f couple of my friends rode bikes and like at the beginning we were, there was a couple people that were like better that we knew probably. My, I remember like my buddy Chris and I would just like send it. Like we'd just be like, all right, there's a jump. And like one time it would work and then four times it wouldn't. And then slowly two times worked and two times didn't. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, it's pretty consistent. As far as tricks go, like you just kind of like think you know and you're looking at a magazine or a video actually helped because you're like, oh, you can see it from beginning to end kind of thing. But yeah, I don't know. I just rode like almost every day and just kind of kept going and getting better. And I don't know, I guess like anything, you just keep doing it and you get better at it. And where'd you grow up? In Chicago. In Chicago. So yeah. was there was there a scene for that there? Sort of. Like, right where I lived, I had two friends who lived a town over, and we had trails, like, literally between our two houses. And then sometimes we'd go and try to ride street, but it was, 
like literally just bunny hopping or like doing manuals, like basically a wheelie without pedaling. And that, that was like the extent of what we knew how to do. I think we could do like half bar spins and like bar spins, but not like bunny hop, just like dropping down, which no one is going to understand what that means, but it basically means we're not doing anything. It's like whatever. But uh, so we had trails in between and then 20, 30 minutes away was Scrap Skate Park, which is like probably the reason I actually started getting better because there was a skate park we could go all day and literally every ramp you could imagine, stuff probably way too big for us, definitely. That was like, we were scared just to ride it half the time. And then slowly got better and then the scary stuff became like normal. When there isn't a skate park available, usually what happens is kids take their skateboard or their bike to downtown steps or something and get chased off by the cops a lot did you still have to deal with that or did the skate park make it so you didn't have to worry about that the skate park just gave you a place to do everything and like the way scrap was set up it had a little bit of everything like there was a box jump a spine quarter pipes a half pipe a mini ramp there's like a little street section so you could do like regular grinds that like you normally would be getting kicked out of spots or getting harassed by the police. But then we would also go ride street downtown Chicago. Like everybody in Chicago used to meet up at the Picasso and then we'd go street riding. And like between the skate park and the street ride sessions was when you realize like, oh, there's like other stuff people can do and you learn from watching others or even them teaching you stuff. And then our trails was like us just doing whatever we thought was we were supposed to do. And then watching videos and trying to build jumps like we saw in the videos, which we always thought were way smaller. But then fast forward a few years, we were like, oh, I guess they were actually just the same size. But in the video, they seem way bigger. Um, so we're probably like needlessly hurting ourselves. <laughs> trying uh, to push yourself to yeah. meet a standard you didn't know you were already meeting. Yeah, exactly. Like it was like, oh, this jump should be way bigger. And then like no one could clear it and be like, mm, maybe we should make it a little smaller. <laughs> like there was definitely those moments. But yeah, it was all just like a learning curve on all fronts of... I mean, even street riding was like, oh, well, we can't go to that spot. Or we can go here for about 10 minutes and we get kicked out. But it used to be pretty lax. I feel like security's a lot rougher now. Maybe just the cameras. But there are also more skate parks now. It's so much easier now for, like, people to get into any sort of action sports because almost every town has, like, their own skate park or every, every other, like, suburb will have it. Yeah. Chicago has, like, there's probably, like, 10 or 12 skate parks in Chicago now in the suburbs. More than that, actually. But... There's probably four or five that are actually like pretty good. And back then, it was one. A, f a friend of mine who has two kids who are like in that preteen age range, he recently, recently as in last year, took them on a road trip across the U.S. And what they did, their, their goal was like, we have to stop at a different skate park in the U.S. every day. Oh, nice. And that was a thing they could do. Yeah. Like, that's a thing that can be done now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I remember there was a few places like Boulder always had a good skate park, and it was like a cement park, like public but that was like a destination. So like people would go to Denver and Boulder just because of that skate park and then stay and go to the trails or ride street. So like we used to do road trips like that kind of too, or driving from like LA to Chicago or back. And we would go to like Vegas, go to the skate park. It'd be like 118 degrees out. <laughs> and you're oh, so it was, it was a colder day. In oh yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, it was literally, I'm, I think I have a picture where it's like my mirror has like a had a thermometer in it and it said like 118 and like we went and rode and it was so hot that like you weren't doing anything like you were just pretending to do like tricks but if you did wash out because your tires are really hot and the ground was so slick there you'd like wash out and like you wouldn't get hurt from falling but you would literally burn like your arm because like you're laying on the ground and you'd be like ah! oh yeah right 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 like, yeah 
like yeah, it's it was, that kind of heat where yeah. you sincerely can fry an egg. Yeah, on the like you know, and you're and you're trying to ride in like shorts and no shirt because it's 118 out. But yeah, we would go from like Vegas, and then where did we go from there? Probably just to like Grand Junction or something in Colorado mm-hmm. had a skate park, and then it was like Boulder, and then we stopped in Iowa because Iowa had a was like had an indoor park called Rampage that was really good. So we could kind of do it every park a day back then, but not really. But you could get close, but it was right. f- sporadic. And nowadays, yeah, you could definitely probably, you could do that almost anywhere here. Mostly what you were talking about was still on the western side of the U.S. Yeah. Whereas now I think you've got a pretty good chance most places in the U.S. So you were saying that you started getting into riding bikes and finding that you're improving. You got that job at Props. You put together this video that led to you getting a sponsorship deal. So tell us how that worked out, how you got that deal, and then how things changed after you had that sponsorship. Yeah, so basically, I would go to Rampage in Davenport, Iowa, which is where Standard Bikes was located, which was one of the, I guess it was one of the two rider-owned companies back then. Um, And then Terrible One had just started, which I actually printed some of their original t-shirts and would intentionally not do a base layer because I didn't like the base layer. And then I could take the shirt home because it wasn't right. But <laughs> if it was a light colored shirt, you don't need a base layer, which I never understood. Everyone wanted these thick, like blocky screen prints. And now it's the opposite. So I guess I was ahead of my time as well in fashion. Because <laughs> years later, it's now it's like all uh, like dyed in stuff. It's no longer like a thick screen print that like folds on your shirt. I would go to Rampage and I kind of met Rick Malterno, who was like, basically a legend in BMX and then he owned this company Standard and we had kind of a friendship but I don't know if I had a deal on a bike or something and then basically I made Team JV and that's right when Billy Graham who was also in the video and myself were basically on Standard at that point Um, we were like the young dudes on the team and then after that I just got to travel a lot more and yeah, kind of started going everywhere I could. Exotic places like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, <laughs> and Orlando. Like, I never really went anywhere cool, but it was like I guess they were they were fun because they were like BMX destinations. But like, I've gone to like all the dumbest places that like no one's ever been to. But like, just middle of Massachusetts, and like I'm in Worcester, but like we're amped to be there because like someone has an indoor park. And, like, everyone else is like, I don't even know what that is. So when they sponsored you, did that give you any sort of income? Was it strictly they gave you gear Um, and then paid for these trips? At the beginning, it was no money. No one made much money back then. There was a few pros who did, for sure. It was basically what an AM would be now. Like, you get a free bike or parts. Maybe you get, like, some co-sponsors. Like, we were sponsored by, like, Shift and whatever. So you get, like, a bunch of free gear, free parts, free clothes. Um, Rick used to send, like, a box. And he owned a skate shop, too, so I'd get, like, a box with a bunch of parts, and then there'd be, like, some stuff from the skate shop, like other brands of clothes and stuff, or a pair of shoes, and then, like, a 12-pack of beer, which he would UPS beer, which, <laughs> like, like I, I still remember that now, and, like, back then it didn't, I didn't understand, because, like, I guess I wasn't even 21, so technically I was totally illegal. <laughs> Why he would spend money to ship beer, but it was more of a joke than it, because it was, like, a 12-pack, you know, and there's, like... I had like, was it in dry ice or something? No, it was just like a case. Like you'd literally go to the grocery store, buy like a warm case, <laughs> and like it would just be mixed in with shirts, and we'd be like, oh, I guess we're having a party tonight. And we'd have like a 24 pack. But I had like, you know, a bunch of friends too that like it was all for. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like we were getting out of control on like a 12 pack right, between 12 right, of us. Right. Like, but it was just funny. But yeah, so he would spend money to ship beer, which seems insane to me now. But maybe shipping wasn't that expensive then. For one, it definitely wasn't, yeah. but it still wasn't cheap. <laughs> 
Were you working at Props still then? Um, did you somehow, once you became sponsored, were I wor- you capable of somehow living off of that? I worked at Props for a while, and then I started going to community college. I don't even know. I have a bad memory of most of this time. It's all those cases of beer. It's probably. I, yeah, I don't know, but I was working at Props for a while. I started going to school, and I realized, like, there's, like, a way I could do this thing, but it's not going to be with Props. But, like, there's probably a way I could do this without going to school. But going to school seemed a lot easier for some reason at the time. It was less to worry about, even though I had a job most of the time I was in school. Uh But it was just, like, I wanted to go to California, and it seemed like a really good excuse. Like, oh, I'm going to go to school there. Oh, so did you move to Los Angeles then for school? After a while, like, I was probably sponsored for maybe two years. And I was all East Coast going to New York, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina for contests, like, Pennsylvania, Iowa, like all Midwest, East Coast, and then I moved to the West Coast, and that's probably, probably got a few pictures in magazines and like some clips and videos and stuff when I lived in the Midwest, but then when I moved here, it was like super easy. You know, there's photographers that lived all over the place, and there was a magazine, there was more than one magazine based here, so it was like really easy to all of a sudden be in magazines now and have little interviews and stuff like that, so I guess, yeah, moving to California definitely made my writing career bigger in media coverage, but I got way worse at riding a bike. <laughs> Maybe just progressing less, because living in LA, it's like not easy. Like you could only ride street or go to a couple sets of trails that technically are legendary, but were terrible compared to what I was used to riding. Like Sheep Hills is like a legendary spot in LA or in Orange County in Huntington. And it's awesome if you're used to riding it. But compared to like something in Pennsylvania, and especially if you're kind of like, I don't know, I guess picky or an asshole like me. <laughs> like I was like, yo, I pedaled as fast as I could over all these bumps and I still cased the jump. Like I didn't clear it. And cause that place was ridden by like double A pro racers. And like most of the guys who were good there either grew up riding it, could ride anything, or were like legit professional, like Olympic level racers. When the Olympics came, they ended up being in it. So it was like a different class of style of riding than I was used to. I was used to like take a couple cranks down a hill and just jump doubles and like do tricks. And like it was, I don't know if it would be easy, but it was almost closer to what like maybe mountain biking would be. Where like you just ride down a hill and you pedal a little bit. And this was like full sprint as fast as you can. Then somehow while bouncing through their bumpy dirt, getting back to like trying to feel normal. Like, oh, now I'm in the air and I'm just going to do the trick I was thinking about while my head jarred for the last 20-foot sprint or 20-yard sprint. So I basically stopped riding dirt when I got out here and only rode street, which was never my forte because it really hurts to fall on street. <laughs> but like it, was, it also hurts to fall on boulders, though. Yeah, so. it's true. Through the years, we've had a few other spots to ride dirt out here, which have been fun, but it was mostly street. So I could, like, do stuff, but I couldn't ride street all day. And there was the skate parks here used to be terrible. Like, when I first moved here, it was, like, they were fun, but fun for, like, a half hour to an hour. Or, like, maybe there was one thing there you could take a picture of or shoot a video of. And then anything else was, like, real effort of getting super creative. And now, like, you can actually go somewhere where there's, like, fun stuff. And, like, you can ride around and have fun or do shoot photos or do this. It was interesting. I lived around, like, a bunch of pros, which were my friends, so that kind of helped. Yeah, and then I started working on, like, some TV stuff, like, editing, shooting more. 
And then I got into photography in college. I basically failed photography in high school. In college, I took a photography class, and then I think I sold a photo for an ad while in the class. And then that ended up being what I did for a while. So I did some video stuff, but then it kind of transitioned to mostly photography, which again, I had flashes, but I didn't know how to use them. I still wasn't into the lighting thing yet. I don't know. I guess it feels like a recent phenomenon. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, you realized, oh, wait, photography's really about light. Yeah. It's not about pointing something. Well, because, like, what I was doing was all, like, you tried to make it look good, but it was all about, like, the trick. So, like, even the video stuff, like, lighting wasn't as important because it was what that dude's doing. Right. And you're kind of stuck. Like, yeah, I knew if the sun was behind, it was going to be more of a silhouette. Or if the sun was in the front or behind me, then that's, like, my key light or something. So, I know, like, mm-hmm. obviously there was, like, some aesthetics to it and framing and whatnot. But, yeah, like, in the end, then when photography came, it was, like, how do I freeze the action and make it look cool? And then, I guess, years later when I started shooting, like, I wouldn't say more mundane stuff, but, like, maybe portraits or, like, fashion stuff was, like, oh, you have to, like, figure out how to make someone standing look cool. Because, like, they're not doing a 15-stair handrail or, like, a great, like, rock climbing photo, you know? You could probably make it look pretty cool without a lot of technical skill because you're, like, we're on a 60-foot cliff in Yosemite like this is already we're at a good spot right and then you know then you get into some other people like I think Jimmy Chin or something where it's like that dude's taking that to a new level that's you know I guess where some photographers ended up going in BMX like Jeff Z's like that guy in BMX like he took bike riding photos and the bike riding looks cool but like let's also make it a cool photo Mm -hmm. and like that was something that like not a lot of even photographers or videographers were doing in BMX at the beginning it was just capturing moments yeah and then once you get into like bigger productions and you you're like oh we have lights like let me try and use them or like I didn't like I don't even know if I knew lights existed to be honest like (laughs) like until I got to college I don't even think I thought of using a, a light for video it's funny because it's just such a given now You're yeah like, well we got to make this look good we got to light this some way but it's true until you have that epiphany it's a thing that never even crosses your mind you never think like oh someone chose to shape how this looks yeah you think like, well, this is what we got. This is what we shoot. Yeah. And you made micro decisions like that where you're like, oh, you know what? Turn around this way or let's go in the shade because it looks better. But I didn't know why the shade looked better. It was just like now I realize, oh, well, it's softer light and it's not harsh and blah, blah, blah. And there's all these things you can do. But back then it was just like, oh, it looks better. Or oh, I don't like that wall, this wall, <laughs> you know, or I don't like that background, which I think is one of the funniest things I notice. Like in L.A., you see photographers on the side of the street all the time. I mean, sometimes it's better than others, but it's most of the time it's generally like, what wall can someone stand against? That has cool graffiti on yeah, it. It's yeah, it's graffiti or brick or whatever. And like a lot of, actually you still have clients, like legit brands that literally talk in those terms. Like, well, what, what wall could be behind them? And you're like, we don't need a wall. We can have depth. <laughs> and they're like, what? And you're like, yeah, like instead of them being against the wall at the gym that we can't tell is a gym, we can turn around, I'll stand against the wall with the camera, and you can see the whole gym behind them. <laughs> right. And now we're like at the place, and they're like, what? And it's like, you'd be surprised how often like a big brand or like, I mean, it's kind of just like a lapse of judgment or like an off comment or something, but you're like, oh, no, no, we'll make it look good. Like it doesn't have to always be 
like a backdrop mm-hmm. or whatever. But yeah, it's like you end up learning like, oh, you have to craft what that looks like. Right. It's not just put in front of you. It sounds like once you came to Los Angeles, you started to shift so that you were focused more on the photography and filmmaking than, than the BMX. So um, when did you eventually drop out of BMX and why? It went to photography and I started working at, at some advertising agencies and I was doing like art direction and design and I got into fashion design, literally a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with video and only some photography. And eventually 10 years of that, which was fun, like I did a lot of cool projects, art directed some brands and whatever. I hurt my back literally walking home one day and like I crumpled up into a ball walking home and like barely made it home, took a bunch of Advil and just laid on my living room floor and like woke up like six hours later and was like, all right, there's something wrong like seriously wrong because I couldn't move and then it like turned out it was like from sitting at a desk all day right and I was like I I can't do this I can't sit at a desk all day I should probably shoot photos and do video stuff again because like I like that and I liked art direction and stuff too but there's a lot of like design and like literally it's like basically like editing where you're just sitting in a room all day almost alone half the time and I didn't want to do that and that's when I got back into doing TV and film stuff so there's like a gap of 10 years where I almost did nothing, like, which is kind of crazy to think about. And were you completely out of BMX at that point? There was on and off. Like, I kind of stopped being a pro, and I used the word pro. There was nothing really professional <laughs> about it, but I guess that's what you would call it because it was, like, I entered pro in contests right. because I couldn't enter expert because it, like, really wouldn't have been fair. But then it wasn't like I was winning those contests either in pro. Um, I had sponsors. I would do like shows like Carnival or a county fair. Weirdest thing on earth. (laughs) Now that I look back on it, that I was like literally hucking myself with the superhero guys, which is like a whole nother chapter of funny, weird road trips and like doing county fairs in front of like, I guess that was like entertainment back then. Like people would show up. Yeah. yeah, Tell us a little bit about this. I think this is worth a a tangent. There's like people, I see them now, like people do shows now and they're much more like formulated and like they kind of have a thing. But like back in the day, one of your only experiences for BMX was like the GT tour would come to town like once a year and it would be like one stop in Chicago and hopefully you could make it that day. And they would ride for like a half hour and that was it. And then maybe sign autographs. And so I remember some of those shows, like fast forward three or four years later and I'm pretty good. And all of a sudden I'm doing shows like that. I don't know if we did like Taste of Chicago, but it'd be like festivals and like like county fairs and carnivals and stuff. I, I want to hear about these county fairs because I'm picturing like the 4-H club comes out with their cows. Oh, yeah. And then the cows shit oh, all over the place yeah. and then you come out on your bike. Yeah, so there was like... There, I mean, there was, we lived in Chicago, or I did, and the show company, like superhero Eric and Ryan and them lived in like Kankakee, which was like an hour south. And that was kind of like hillbilly a little bit. We did shows in like, was it, what was in Indianapolis? It was like the marathon or during the the car race but we did shows like downtown Indianapolis where like people were never there for us it was like we were like the sideshow right but there'd be like you know a thousand people in the crowd or like it was there was like there was moments where it was like county fair and like the ramp wasn't even there yet and they had like a rodeo or something <laughs> and, or like they, I remember there was like one of them had like a tough man contest somewhere in the fair and then like on the side was like us doing tricks on bikes like just like weird stuff it was just like it was like attractions 
like sideshow stuff and like whatever lasted. There were things like a skate shop or something opened and we do a show for that or like a bike shop or something like that. Yeah, no one was there for us, but then like we were basically celebrities for an hour. Since we were like young kids and like half the people there were young kids, it was like, I mean, some of us weren't young kids. Some of those dudes were older, but I was a young kid. I was probably 17 or 18. But yeah, it was strange, very strange. I was not very consistent. So half the time you'd end up just falling and maybe not even finish the show. But I think we got paid like at the beginning it was like $50 a show. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, back then that was, I wouldn't say good money, but like. It wasn't good, but wasn't at good, 17 but it was like, all right. Just for riding a bike though? Yeah. Like, and then you're like, like, and you thought too, like, oh, I just got to ride this box jump. Like that was fun on its own. So like mm-hmm. I just went and had fun and got paid $50. Right. Like that was pretty, that was like baller. And like. It was never a good setup because it was never like a skate park. It was a box jump in a field next right. to cows or, right. or as like. As long as ne- you didn't fall in cow shit, it yeah. was a good day. Or next to the big zipper or something. Like, <laughs> so you're like pedaling across a field. Contests were like that too, though, where you're like, it was never an ideal scenario. It was just like, we threw this up. Let's do it. Did you get a free pass to the, to the carnival too? Could you go ride the zipper immediately afterwards for free? We probably could have. I don't think we ever cared. I think it was... We were too busy, like, taking, p- building the ramps. Because we had to all had portable ramps, so we had to build them, tear them down, which was, I guess that's probably the only part that seemed like work. And then you were probably trying to hit on the girls. At yeah, the yeah. Then there would be, like, afterwards. yeah, like, the other, like, 16, 17-year-old girls or whatever. And, you know, we were also 16 or 17, so it didn't seem that weird. But, yeah, in some hillbilly town, like, God, where were there? There was shows in, like, Moline, like, Rockford. There was one, God, I wish I remember the name of the town, but it was like, it was an hour and a half from Chicago and literally it was just like this town had like a factory and then that was the entire town. And I remember doing shows on like Main Street and like the streets blocked off and stuff and you're like, why are we here? Like what the turn up festival or something, not turn up, like right, turnips, turnips. <laughs> like, the, right. like the vegetable. Yeah. That was actually weirdly. I was like, "Yeah, like sounds like something." Like, like, that sounds like something I would be at now. Uh, I was gonna go to the turn it up festival. Yeah. No, 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 no turnips no. or like whatever. You were confused. This is the turn up or whatever kind of corn they made there. You know. So yeah, there was a lot of versions of the BMX thing too. I guess. So then you were doing all that wacky shit. You left it behind to move to Los Angeles and, and become a uh, probably an art director, I guess. And then you're like, ah, my back's killing me. So I guess I should start doing other more active yes. stuff again. I did a lot of like art direction, graphic design, fashion design, and like marketing, I guess. And yeah, I hurt my back. At that point, I was freelance. I like made a conscious decision. Like I'm not going to take any more like new clients. I'm literally only going to work for the people I like that are easy to work with and stuff. Like I'm not doing any like design work on the side. I'll only do like a few things for these people and I'm going to do video and photos now. Yeah. So how'd you transition back into that stuff? I don't even remember how that worked. <laughs> like it was literally, I, mean, I just remember a conscious decision. Like if I keep doing this design work, I'll keep doing it. So I had to like limit it, yeah, yeah. which was like hard cause that was how I made money. But I think Quentin which was like a hat is a hat company that was like action sports just started. And I was friends with some of those guys and uh, they basically make like hats and clothes. They got into like BMX and skateboarding. They, they basically needed like videos and photos of stuff. I went on a shoot with uh, my friend faith asked me to help with, and it was in a ditch and I didn't actually like put together what was going to happen, but I showed up and it was, was it like six or seven guys? I'd say six of five or six of them. 
I knew very well from riding bikes and was like, I definitely should have realized that I was just going to go hang out with all my friends today. Um, but I didn't realize that they, those were the guys on the team because it wasn't really official at that point. And then she showed up an hour later and we're like shooting action photos. And she was like, can you help? Cause I've never shot like BMX. And she showed up wearing high heels. <laughs> and so here's like this cute girl in a dress and high heels walking around with a camera who like, you know, was a decent photographer in her own right, but like not for this. And everyone's like, so uh, Aaron, you want to shoot this photo? Because <laughs> like everyone knew I could do it because I had shot photos for magazines of bike riding for years. And so I guess through that, it kind of turned into like, oh, maybe we'll make a video. And like all this stuff was basically like, if I thought of it now, I would have never agreed to do it. It was maybe like $100 for a video. Mm-hmm. And like at that point, it wasn't like I was a broke kid, but I was just like, well, I want to do this, so I'll do it. I basically made like the lowest budget stuff, but it was... Again, just stuff like I'd done before, but I had a little more knowledge. Now you knew that lights existed? Yeah, so then it would be like, how do we light this with no money? At least there was an idea of how do we light it. Right. You know, so then it was figuring out, which is weird that I still take that mentality now and like make lights myself because I'm like, well, I can use a Kino, but that costs $1,200 and weighs 20 pounds, or I can build an entire set with quasar bulbs and build it myself how I want it. And it should work just as good. And I probably spent a thousand total for like a four set light, a set of four lights. And I can put them all in a golf bag and go to Nashville and shoot for a week instead of bringing one Kino with me. I mean, I guess there's a reason, but I still think in that mindset of like, I'll just do it myself. They asked you to shoot some photos because the woman in high heels oh. was maybe not completely prepared for the shoot. Yeah. And then you started making videos again, and then suddenly you found out, hey, I'm shooting BMX and stuff Yeah, again. so that led to kind of doing BMX videos again in a small sense, but they were a little more creative than they were before, a little more production value or like just thought put into it. DSLRs existed that like the Canon 5D I think is what we started shooting stuff on and that like allowed you to actually shoot like good looking video although not the best for action and movement but I mean it looked good and it was acceptable and you could put stuff on YouTube now pretty easy it was still way better than what you got on your VHSC oh yeah than even the VX1000 which still today people use because when we do skate stuff some people send in footage and I'm like you're sending me stuff off a of VX1000. It's a 20-year-old camera, and it's SD. Why Why are they still using it? Why wouldn't they There's, just have a GoPro or they, something? Yeah, well, because a GoPro would technically be higher quality. There's like an aesthetic, <laughs> yes. there's an aesthetic quality to the VX1000. The hue of the camera, whatever you want to call it, the picture profile, is like a little on the gold side, and it's kind of like nice. But if you just learned how to color correct <laughs> at all, right. you can mimic that color. So people are essentially using it, as far as I can tell, is because they're too cheap to buy a real camera or learn how to use one. But, and, but I know people making, like, as far as action sports go, like fairly legit stuff, and they're still doing a VX1000, still logging tapes, still doing all this stuff. I, I, I mean, I guess it just limits you from doing anything on a professional level outside of what you currently do. There's an aesthetic choice, and I know people have made like music videos with them on purpose, which seems like a fun project. But as your like go-to camera every day, like you have to have three of those things, and it's not for a three-camera shoot. It's like because one may stop working at any point, <laughs> and then you have another one, and that one may stop working at any point because you have a million little mechanics. They used to stop working all the time. Everyone used to send in their VX1000s. Like your microphone would break off, it would, the tape thing would stop ejecting, like, and then you'd not have a camera for two months, and then you'd get it back from Sony, and it'd be like, they would send it back and they'd clean it, 
and then you'd be excited because it felt like a new camera. <laughs> There's no reason to use that camera anymore, and people still do it. It's the type of thing if you watch like sports on TV and SD by accident, like you're on the wrong channel, and you can't read the jerseys. Like you can't, you just tell that that guy's on the Lakers, and you think it's Shaquille because he's really big, but you can't actually tell that it's Shaquille or Kobe or whatever. Like that's what a VX1000 looks like. You kind of get what Tricky did. It might be this guy or that guy. It might be this spot or that spot. If you want to read the guy's T-shirt, just use a camera that shoots in HD. Dude, you're getting a VX1000 sponsorship. As oh, soon I'm as trying this goes to live. so hard. <laughs> There's ones you can buy them online. I find because like it's still like a thing. It's like a cottage industry, and people buy these things and paint them and like like color com- like color combos for the camera. And then put them back together, and then sell them on eBay for like six hundred bucks, like VX one thousand in like orange and blue, like Denver Broncos colors, and like all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, but why do I want the camera? <laughs> like, like as like a thing to put on my shelf would be cool, but dude, still use it. It's so weird. So if anybody wants to get him a VX one thousand for Christmas, send we'll it to pro- Butcherbird we'll, yeah, Studios. Send it to Butcherbird Studios, and we'll pass it along. Yeah. <laughs> so you decided not to shoot with VX one thousands. Yeah. So and then we were using shooting with DSLRs, DSLRs um, and trying to make them look like real cameras. And then now I want to get rid of my real cameras and go back to DSLRs. So <laughs> right, they're too big and heavy. They're too big and heavy and expensive. It's weird. Anything in the mid range kind of sucks. And like a GH5 is better than all of them. And if you want something that's better than a GH5, other than ergonomics or something, you have to get like a C300 Mark II. Because a C300 is really only good if you're shooting reality TV. Unless you build the hell out of it and go crazy. But like, then you might as well get a C300 Mark II. But that's what, a $12,000 camera for the body or something? So it's like, or you can buy a $2,000 GH5. Right. And it does pretty much all that. You just have to work around the form factor. Which sometimes works in your favor when you're trying yeah. to get into tight spaces or move around yeah, in small exactly. spaces. But yeah, and like they've kind of fixed a lot of like the rolling shutter stuff and like the codex and I think a lot of like even the internal recording on like a, I don't know, I keep going back to a GH5 just because like I want to get it. <laughs> but uh, the internal recording on that's better than what's in a C300. Not the Mark II. You could run a GH5 for less than a quarter of the cost of a C300 Mark II, for sure. Now you're trying to get a Panasonic sponsorship, but yeah. make sure you don't get but a that Canon new sponsorship. EVA. I like Canons, too. Uh, <laughs> I really liked my C100 Mark II. That was an awesome camera, but it doesn't do 4K. Uh, if you could put it in a VX1000 body, body boom. <laughs> yeah, and then the funny part is I switched back to Sony. Yeah, I love those a lot, <laughs> especially the skin tones. If you know... Anything about camera codecs, you know that I'm serious? We're sure talking a lot about cameras now. <laughs> so you started shooting with real lights and real cameras. I wouldn't say real lights yet, but like well, probably work lights. With lights. Yeah. With lights and yeah. real cameras. So how did that go from, all right, I'm no longer going to be this art director guy. I'm going to start picking up these little video jobs and, oh, shit, now I've got series for ESPN. I honestly have no clue. Dude, we got to get um, you some ginkgo biloba or something yeah. so you can remember your life. I made two videos, two one and a half minute edits, kind of like I used to do. And, and I showed my buddy who worked at ESPN that ran the website. Hey, do you want to put these on ESPN? Because they have bought photos from me and stuff before. He's like, yeah, these are awesome. He's like, I'll totally put them up. He's like, you just have to change the music and the titles. And I, I remember writing back and like, nah, that's cool. It's already done. And it's like, so I like foregoed getting money for something just because I didn't want to change the music and the titles. And I go, I'll just make new videos. Like, I'll find something new to do. And then that turned into like, oh, well, maybe I can do it with this guy. And it was 
it was a mix of me pitching ideas um, for like content for uh, xgames.com and ESPN and them saying like, oh, there's an event here. Would you want to do it? And that kind of bounced back and forth between video and photos. That was probably the main thing that got me back into like really doing video, like being able to like sort of sustain some sort of like monetary income, although it didn't pay well, it was enough. And then that kind of led more and more to other things. There were a lot of one-off pieces, kind of like, I mean, there's a lot of people who do similar stuff for like news stations and whatever. So I was doing that, but in action sports. But that's made me thinking of like as a story, start to finish or as a series. And then I pitched ESPN on a couple series that I wanted to do. And we did some of those and it was like documentary style, like behind the scenes, blah, blah, blah. Like trying to tell bigger stories, longer segments, multiple parts, stuff like that. And then the skaters and cars thing kind of came up because Chris Noreko had this idea, talked to Tunny about it, who was the guy at ESPN. And then he asked me and then Chris and I like met, talked about it and kind of formulated what it would be and basically went and shot a pilot. And then Skaters and Cars was born with a Mikey Anderson episode that we shot on two drift cameras that I borrowed from Kurt Yeager that were like the GoPros kind of in the car and then just me shooting it. And then like now it's, you know, me, Chris, two camera ops, a sound guy, possibly a driver, possibly a PA or, you know, producer or an assistant of some sort. So it's grown from, you know, two of us with like basically borrowed stuff to an actual production of sorts. So that's been interesting. But yeah, that's been like three or four years in the making, I guess. But we made the pilot and then they wanted more of it. I don't know if that was my first experience, but I guess ESPN is our first experience of like actually coming up with an idea, pitching it and getting it sold. And you're still doing that show with them, right? Yeah, so skaters and cars still exist. The BMX stuff doesn't as much. I don't even know if they do much BMX content, to be honest. I mean, like around X Games they do, but not just like on a regular platform basis. There probably is, I just don't know. But yeah, we do skaters and cars for them. Now it's like, now it's actually more structured, like a real series. So it's one a month. We actually have a deadline. We have like network notes and like everything that goes with working with like a network, but actually they're pretty cool with it. And it's usually mostly what we want. They'll just kind of, if something's a little too rough or like we missed like bleeping a cuss word or something, like that's actually the majority of the notes. It's not really content-based, which is nice because when I've dealt with other networks, the notes are like asking to put in stuff that doesn't exist. Right. Or they change the concept of the show after it's been shot. Right. So, yeah, for the most part, it's pretty cool. But it's weird because that's almost the only way I know I make stuff. We, we've worked together on projects with Butcher Bird and the Tilt stuff and other stuff. But even that's still and like... We used to do a whole bunch of Nexon shit together. Yeah, into. oh, yeah, Nexon stuff. So Nexon was some of the only stuff I got brought in that, like, literally I didn't pitch. So it was like, hey, you're just going to show up and edit something someone else wrote or designed or whatever. And then, yeah, that's like a small portion, which I feel like it's most people's like main portion is like, hey, here's a job for X company. You're on the production team. Here's your role. Yeah, usually people are struggling to get to a point where they can create their own content yeah. instead of other people's content. Yeah, and mine's like, I don't know how to make anyone else's content. I just make my own. Or with the actual company, like, we figure it out ourselves. So I'm, like, basically executive producing or directing it. It's not always high budget, but, like, yeah, it's weird. When I see, I mean, like, Moreno or Calcutta or 
even Travis, like they're directing these things. And I'm like, oh, that's crazy. But it's like someone else essentially hired them to shoot something for them. And it's their vision. There's not been much of that for me. So it's trying to maximize resources of like what little money we have and trying to like borrow real lights from Moreno and then like buying him like a sandwich. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot to feed that guy. So yeah. you probably need two sandwiches. Well, not anymore. Now he'll like, when I go there to, to like, quote rent gear he usually makes me a smoothie and i'm like you're eating way healthier than me it's so crazy i guess yeah it's helped to like have like friends that have real gear like moreno is essentially a rental house that's right that's six digits if you need to rent some gear look up six digits yeah if you need the homey rental thing you <laughs> no know no him. pay him real prices yeah. unless he's actually your friend yeah but yeah so like you know having or even like the stage and stuff like allows you to do a lot more like i know you recently got sent to india for what two weeks right to shoot vr stuff we were there i'm actually going back next week oh so that's coming up yeah we were there two months ago we were shooting a vr project for a nonprofit like charity it was basically two vr documentaries about kids with cleft lip the idea is originally it was like i think we want we were talking like three minutes like a kind of like a web edit style digital piece but vr like you kind of have to hold clips longer because people want to look around and stuff like that so they may be a little longer i'm not sure where we're we're ending on but yeah we were there for i think 15 days or i'm confused as how long we were there because i think i was gone for 18 days but i don't know how much of that was there was like three days of travel to just to get there to get to the location because it was fly to hong kong wait in hong kong fly to delhi spend the night in delhi wake up fly to some town in india then look for water for two hours because you have to bring your water with you, then drive two and a half hours to the hotel, then spend the night, then drive three hours to the location the next day. And then we show up. So what's that? Three days deep, four days deep to get to the actual location. The uh, talent's not there. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a moment. Yeah, there's a whole backstory to that. But, you know, shooting in India is kind of crazy. Especially <laughs> you're going back. And then shooting VR is like its own thing. VR is so weird. It's hard to think in the 360 space. And then you also just have to make so many exceptions. Like, that's kind of the hardest part is just going like, well, if something's happening behind it, we can't really help it because we're shooting live like, or we're shooting in the wild. We can just do the best we can do. And yeah, you can plate it where you shoot one side then the other. But like that gets tricky, too, unless you're trying to spend a ton of time in post and in production. It's a lot of choices and like compromises, I feel like. I feel like they're very different things because some of the people put your bird more into it than I am. And, and I think it's cool, and it's interesting for the right thing. Like, we shot this one seven teacups, or it's like a canyoneering 360 thing. And, and I think that's cool because someone can experience something yeah. to a certain degree. They can't. But one of the things I don't like about shooting VR is I feel like it takes away all the aspects of filmmaking that I most like. Like, choosing my composition, yes. controlling what the audience yeah. can see. Controlling the look. Because, yeah. I mean, you can control your look with VR, but not to the extent you can with a single frame. But it's really cool when you can immerse somebody yeah, in something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's more of a, like, I don't look at it as, like, storytelling or filmmaking. It's, like, experience making. Yeah. Fred went to Cambodia and shot a bunch of, uh, like, temples. And that stuff is like, oh, you got, like, a feeling that you're there. But he's not necessarily telling a story. And it's hard to tell a story with VR because of all the technical aspects. I mean, it's, you can do it, but it's just more of an experience and a yeah, feeling. It's, it's a different way of having a story told yeah. to you, for sure. Like, it's an experience and a vibe that you're there, whereas when you're shooting 2D, I can, like, do a close-up of a face. So all you see is that emotion or perceived emotion in their face. And mm -hmm. I can light it where it looks dramatic or it looks like a horror movie or it looks like this. 
shooting in 360, it's like, well, we're probably going to see those lights. So we either have to get real creative with practicals or not, or not yeah, at all. Or like, do a lot of posts. Yeah, it's them. like it's almost like zero production or four times the production. You have your option. Like it's either you're shooting with an iPhone with whatever's there or you're shooting with like twice the crew to actually make it look right, decent, right. which is crazy. What is it like a day of shooting VR is like four times the amount of post as regular video? Is that like the matrix we figured out? I don't know. That's probably accurate. Lewis said something like that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I, that, that post will disappear to a certain degree at some point, but it has not yet. Not yet, no. What are you looking forward to now? So you've gone through all these stages where you like, you're like a BMX kid and a filmmaker that became an art director that be, that went back to filmmaking. You were just shooting your own stuff, but then now you're also branching out to shooting your own stuff and work for higher stuff. Where do you see yourself going from here? And do you think the action sports stuff is going to continue to be part of what you do? I think Chris and I really like doing skaters and cars. Like, we both really like it. And it's, like, kind of changed a bit now with the, more of a schedule, which helps, actually, in a way. Like, it's weird to have, like, think creatively as having, like, essentially a schedule and restraints actually helping. But it, like, helps us get it done. Like, we have to have it done on this day. So no matter what either one of us are working on other projects, it's like there's still this thing that we're going to do. So that's fun. I mean, I like producing it. I like that aspect. And I like doing more of that. I also like on the advertising end of like creating the concepts for shows or for series or digital content for brands, which I do a lot of too. In my mind, like the production model, like there's obviously a space for big production companies, 30 person crews, 50 person crews, huge stages, lighting, like, like that's like cinema, but like content, I don't see as needing that much one with technology and smaller form factors and whatnot you can shoot like we're shoot you guys are shooting the three camera facebook live stuff for butcher bird studios and i mean that's what three people on the crew and yeah like if it was for a client we'd have like one or two more and it'd be a little more precise but other than set design i mean there's not much else you can do for that that's like a really well produced three what was it four camera live show what he's talking about is it is that butcher bird we've started doing weekly facebook live shows and right before he and i started recording this we were doing an episode about this podcast yeah so i'll, I'll link it you'll be able to watch it should you want to know more about this podcast but like production wise that thing that's a really legit show shot in the green room with like a small handful of people somewhat minimal amount of gear although it's like all the right stuff and nice but you could essentially take that almost anywhere and do it i mean other than you know the actual on-camera talent whether you like them or don't oh they're terrible today yeah like between set design and that's the only thing you might not like about it because everything else is like done really well done as well as like live event stuff i've shot with a crew of 15 people like for what it is it's perfect and like I feel like that way, that style of content and that like size production, whether it's live or not live, is what's growing. The huge production crews shooting commercials still exists. You can't spend 200 grand on something that's going to go away in five minutes. Like it's literally like watch this now on Instagram and you may never see it again. And if your company's spending 100 grand on that spot, talk to me <laughs> because I'll make two of those for 100 grand or maybe 10. So like it's it's like packaging, you know, and like that's a lot what I deal with is like how do you take this concept of making like I mean I've actually done it with networks where it's like here's your TV show, but here's your digital and collateral deliverables 
that all circle, like they all relate to each other. And your while your digital content is actually pushing forward or promoting your broadcast content and now your broadcast content is promoting your website because before people would just say go to our website but you why would you go there what are you going to look at there's nothing on the website like they didn't really have content now you can actually have that content and if you do it right you can actually have completely different content that relates that's what's interesting to me is like if we have two hours with some rapper how do we get the most out of that two hours is it one TV show or is it a digital segment, a TV segment, and five social segments? And like, that's something you can do if you figure it out, but it also takes planning and like thinking of it in that route, which a lot of people don't do, which is like something we kind of did with the Tilt stuff was like, how do we make the most out of this? Like, how do we deliver them the most stuff that they, beyond what they just want? Yeah, and for people that don't know what he's talking about for that, that was a project that he and I both worked on that included two series, one where we profiled different people and one where Eric and I traveled across the U.S. and documented living on the road for two months. Yeah, it's an award-winning oh, yeah, series. That's right. <laughs> I still don't know what the category is, but apparently we won a telly award. Yep. And the package that was is in the mail. <laughs> so then we'll see what it is. I'd like to know what the category is. I just want to make, I want to make the bowling trophy. Oh, man. What about a bowling-style trophy, but if the guy had a VHS camera? <laughs> A VX-1000? A VX-1000. I think the full VHS, or VHS-C would be tight. Well, I've got one at home, so we could we could, oh, we could, we could just build a mold for spray it. paint a VHS tape gold. <laughs> so the, the best part is, like, I made the first video I ever made on VHS. I have one copy of it, opened, probably still plays, just beat up box and everything. It's mm -hmm. just, like, sitting there. And people can, like, randomly or, like, run into, like, bike riders and stuff. Like, last week I was in Nashville, and I ran into a guy who used to be a pro, and he's just like... Dude, I love that video. It was like super strange because I'm like, that was like so weird that you loved that video. But he's like, loved it, blah, blah, blah. You still have copies of it? And I was like, no. Like, what, would I, what would you do? Because VHS tapes are huge. Dude, you should digitize it so it can be online. My friend who's in it, his girlfriend, as a Christmas present or birthday present, digitized it for him and put it on a DVD. And I like that was like, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I remember being like, it'd be cool if I had a DVD. Like, could have made two. I'll tell you what, I, I've got a setup. I, we can, if I can still have a VCR that works, we can digitize this, put it online. There's a BMX, can you can actually go out. watch it on um, bmxvideodatabase.com or something like that. Like you can find it because there's a BMX, there's a website that like basically catalogs BMX videos. And this is like apparently before copyrights existed and whatnot or on the internet. I'm not sure if they can still do it because most of the brands probably wouldn't allow it, but there's like a bunch of old BMX videos and like every once in a while, like someone will post something from a video I made and I'm like, oh, I have to go watch that on there. But it's like, you know, you're watching SD footage that was converted, I don't know, 10 years ago. So you just set up a great segue for me. So if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, man, this Aaron dude sounds so interesting. <laughs> I just don't know enough yet. I need to find out even more. Where can they go online to keep up with what you're doing right now, but oh. also where they could see some of these old videos or previous things you've done, or even maybe some of these old photographs and 16-year-old well, Aaron? You could go to my website, AaronNardi.com, and see very outdated work I've done because I don't update it. So that's that's a plus. Great. So you can go see a lot of old <laughs> I, shit there. I, I felt so bad. After I got back from Nashville, I got a phone call like last week. Hey, can you... DP 
this job. My buddy, who's an agent for some directors and whatnot, is like, hey, they wanted a guy. You sounded perfect. I sent your stuff to them, and I was like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't send them my website. Like that, That's like two, three years old, and I just don't update it. And he's like, well, I already did. So now I have to talk to the production company and be like, here's the thing. I'm so busy and popular. I'm so I popular and so cool that I didn't even give you, like, you're not even seeing anything good. So I actually showed them, because uh, it's music stuff, and I actually showed them uh, the DJ Ivy piece from the Tilt thing, and I was like, so this is like something somewhat recent. It's an interview. It's also lifestyle. It's also music. And they're like, this is awesome. Oh, and we're going to shoot in like a really tight space. This is one of the requirements of the shoot. I guess celebrity, entertainment people, big name brand. I don't know how much I can actually say. Let's skip that part. But, <laughs> you know, it's someone in the music industry in a tight space. And I realize about a half hour after conversation, I'm pretty sure that the job's going through. Like, it's like, all right, we just have to run it by the client, make sure it's all cool, because it's, like, very particular in who they can hire and whatnot. Um, I don't know if they did a background check, but, like, it's, like, that kind of thing. And I, like, a half hour later, I realized, oh, so um, one thing I forgot to show you was I DP'd and produced the pilot, which we shot on a tour bus, which is exactly what we're talking about. Rappers, musicians, in a very small environment, trying to make it look as good as we can. I completely forgot about that project that was like literally the thing we were talking about. So what Aaron is saying is go to his website so you can see stuff that doesn't pertain to his life in the last few years. And then someone looking for a side job, send him an email and say, hey, if you want somebody to update this website for you. (laughs) The worst part is the fact that I do like marketing and branding Yet yeah, not for myself. Yeah, you might want to get on that. I've actually had people tell me, like, you should probably use your Instagram to, like, get business. Yeah, but if I post a photo I shoot on Instagram that, like, I think is, like, something really cool, it could have taken, like, a studio and four people to set up, and I'm like, look at this, this awesome image of whatever. It might get, like, 20 likes or 30, but if I post a selfie of me at the gym, it'll get, like, 100 or maybe, like, 60. <laughs> if I post right. a picture of me riding a bike, it'll get, like, 120. So, like, the people who are following me are not there for, like, my work, mm-hmm. which I feel, always feel like I'm forcing it when I, like, I'm, like, I like cameras. I'm putting a picture of this camera up. You know, I get, like, six likes. Or like, <laughs> and, like, and, like, clients will go on my thing, and they're, like, wow, you have a lot of followers, but it's, like, a few thousand. And I'm, like, no, like, the people we deal with have a lot. They have, like, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands or millions. But I guess it's a lot for, like, a regular person who posts pictures of, like, their dog that's not even their dog. Oh, yeah. So what is that Instagram account so people can go Aaron up Nardi, that number? Oh, at Nardi. Most of it's all my name. You can find me on Facebook. I don't really go on Facebook. You know, probably been told I should use that for marketing as well. You're really selling your marketing yeah. abilities here. I can market other stuff. It's a good thing this isn't a marketing podcast. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the best. So why does why does nothing you do look good? Uh, you know, <laughs> nothing about you is cool. Yeah, I know. It's all about making other people look cool. All right. So now we know we can send people to AaronNardi.com, Aaron Nardi, and every social media Me, thing basically. that that maybe will have been updated. Snapchat, it's there, but uh, I don't have the app, so that's good. <laughs> that must make it very difficult to use. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't use it. Um, I was told that all of a sudden Snapchat was going to be this great world of like girl sending like boob photos and this and that and like i was like okay you kind of got you sold me on it it's like uh was instagram around then probably right but i was like oh i get it it goes away this sounds kind of interesting and cool i could see it being like fun 
And then I go on it, and it's like someone goes to the zoo, and they put a Snapchat <laughs> of every single animal at the zoo. And, like, you used to have to watch every one of your things to get to the next one. At least I think you did. I didn't know how not to. So I'd be like, I had to go through, like, 12 of these, like, giraffe, rhinoceros. And none of it's good. It's just, like, a <laughs> cell phone video of a giraffe. And then finally I get to, like, oh, maybe we got, like, something interesting here because I know this girl. Well, nope. This is just, like, a picture of a car. And it's, like, it like, the most disappointing social media on earth that took too long so i just stopped using well, it. well you'll be happy that instagram is adding all that functionality yeah. to instagram now so now you can relive that experience there as well yeah so now you can watch stories but at least you can thumb through stories really quick and you also pick and choose the stories you want to watch snapchat used to i don't know if it still does but it used to force it on you like in order so i had to like if i followed someone i had to see it like i couldn't get around it or i didn't know how to use it either way i'd rather have one I just look at Instagram. So on this happy note about Snapchat, we'll wrap up the show. So what I'm in, the opportunity I'm going to give you right now. Snapchat is, sponsorship? It's, it's I'm definitely getting sponsored by a lot of camera companies. Yeah, yeah. It's out there. I'll, I'll be your brand ambassador. Tell everyone how good it is. Yeah. So now you can leave any final thoughts, any final words, anything you want to leave the general public with right now, or just beg for more sponsorships. And then we'll wrap up the show. Yeah, I don't know if what I'm doing is convincing anyone to sponsor me. If you do, I will minimize my criticisms of your product. <laughs> um, no, I just want to go hiking and canyoning and stuff. Oh, so this is just him trying to out me in public yeah. and force me to take him canyoneering? I mean, I get random text messages, and it's always when I can't do it or I'm out of town, but like, I don't have any of the gear either. Yeah, I'll make sure to offer you some opportunities when you're in India. Yeah, it'll be perfect. Yeah. All right, um, so on that note, everybody sponsor Aaron, and he'll try not to criticize your, project, too your much. product too much. Just a little bit. And I guess I owe you a canyon. Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to bring you to a good one, not a shitty one. Yeah. I'm also really positive. <laughs> Sounds like I'm being critical, but like I still I like VX1000s at the time. It was like amazing <laughs> then. And I still shoot on Sonys and also Canons and Panasonics. Everything has a plus side. All right, everybody. So run off now to eBay and see if you can find yourself an overpriced VX1000. Custom paint job. You can be the next Aaron Nardi. Can you imagine? Years from now. Can you imagine how hard it would be to do like a vlog with any sort of taped, <laughs> tape-based camera? You're like, you have to record it, then you have to like take the tape out, put it in a special little VCR, press play, log it, then go back, then edit it, and then it's an SD. Usually, usually we all say goodbye to each other at the end of this show. We're just we're gonna go out <laughs> on Aaron's final rant about the VX one thousand. Take it away. No, I mean it's just tape based media is kind of outdated. Please <laughs> shoot film. All right. Please. Film? Yeah. That's the next time. We'll talk about film. <laughs> And on that note, we're going to go get back to uh, whatever kind of work we need to get done for the day. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you, dude. Now is a great time to head on over to the website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Look for this episode 54 with Aaron Nardi. And there you will find pics, photos of Aaron in action, both on bikes and with cameras. 
along with a multitude of links. Links to AaronNardi.com, his Instagram account, a link to the Skaters and Cars show on the ESPN website, and specifically Aaron's section on that BMX movie database that we talked about earlier in the show, a link to the Untethered My Passion Project, which is the project he and I both worked on for Tilt last year. So you can see all of those episodes at the album link there. And that's not all. Also links to Props Magazine, which is where he got his start, and to the Butcher Bird Presents episode that was being recorded that morning that we reference where I was on our live show talking about this podcast. So if you haven't heard enough about this damn thing, then head on over to the website, click on that link, and listen to me talk for 20, 30 minutes about this show. All right, and now, since I know most of you have probably already checked out or are considering turning off the show right now, let me see if I can get through all of this back matter before I lose your attention. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, go at butcherbirdstudios.com, but that's not all. You could call us, 818-925-0106. There you can leave us a voicemail up to three minutes, and run on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you are subscribed to the show. Please rate the show, review the show, and share it with someone you love. Next time on the show, it is that time. Time again for another roundtable episode. So come back August 16th and hear four separate cavers talk all about the activity of caving and answer all of the many questions you may have. August 16th, come back for the caving roundtable. See you then.